If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. When Greek soldiers captured the royal command tent of the Persian king during the ancient Greco-Persian wars, they were stunned by what they saw. Their adversary's seat of power was absolutely dripping with dazzling decadence. And to the Greeks, this luxurious lifestyle was the obvious reason that the Persians had been vanquished. In today's podcast, Emily Briffitt speaks to Jamie Fraser and Kelly Assetta Crow, who are curators at the British Museum, because they've got a new exhibition that explores how the Persians and the Greeks thought about luxury, wealth and power. Hello and welcome to you both, Jamie and Kelly. It's a real pleasure to meet you. So for our listeners at home, would you just mind introducing yourselves and your roles? Yeah, hi Emily. Uh, My name is Jamie Fraser and I'm a curator in the Middle East Department at the British Museum and I'm one of the two curators working on the exhibition Luxury and Power, Persia to Greece. Hi Emily, I'm Kelly Asetta Crow. I also work as a curator here at the British Museum and for the last few months I've been assisting Jamie as the project curator for Luxury and Power, Persia to Greece. Brilliant. Thank you so much. So one of the latest British Museum exhibitions of summer 2023 is Luxury and Power, Persia to Greece. Considering how decadence, or in some case perhaps a lack of decadence, was used in lands from Greece to what we now know as Afghanistan to convey prestige, rulership and sometimes even status. But before we really dive into this part of the history, I think we do need a quick bit of context. So we're talking about vast swathes of land here existing in the first millennium BC. But could you just give us a bit of the historical background? What does this part of the world look like at this time? Sure. So you're right. This exhibition deals with southeastern Europe, particularly you know the Balkan Peninsula, and it stretches all the way across the Middle East, parts of Egypt, uh, into Central Asia, Afghanistan, the edge of Pakistan. Um, and in the ancient world, and we're talking about sort of 600, 500 BC through to um, maybe about 100 BC, give or take. For most of that period, most of that area, particularly the Middle East and Central Asia, was controlled by the ancient Persian Empire. And this is an empire that has sort of arisen out of the, the Zagros Mountains of southwestern Iran or modern-day Iran. So think ruins of places like Persepolis or Pasargadae. And from those centres, um, the Persians had stretched across the Middle East and Central Asia to forge the largest empire that the world had ever seen up until that point. And that's sometimes called the Achaemenid Empire, and that word Achaemenid is after the the dynastic rulers who were ruling uh, the empire, so the the royal family, the Windsors, if you like, of ancient Persia. Um, And then around the, the first half of the 5th century BC, the Persians push across the Hellespont, across the Bosphorus, into southeastern Europe. They conquer places like Thrace, sort of ancient Bulgaria, and of course start to come into conflict with a ragtag group of city-states in Greece, in particular 
places like Athens. And when we're dealing with Greece, we're not dealing with a unified nation state with, you know, central parliament, central flag. At this point of time, these really are a series of independent city states, some of which allied together to resist and then repel the Persian invaders. So as today we are going to be talking about how luxury was used to convey power, let's start with Persia. What was their view on this kind of splendor? Well, the Persians used it in quite a clever way. So a lot of times when we think of luxury, we think of things that are um, kind of unnecessary. We think of them as being additional to our everyday needs. But the Persians actually integrated them into the way that they ruled their empire. So because the Persian empire was so vast, you're talking about stretching all the way from, you know, Libya and Egypt in the west to like we said, Pakistan in the East, you have a wide variety of material culture that's coming in to the Persian capitals and can be used for the king. But the king is a quite a clever person, and he recognizes that just taking in tribute um, isn't particularly helpful to binding people to you. You also have to kind of give it out as largesse. And the way the king lives is he uses amazing textiles, and he's drinking from gold and silver drinking vessels. And he shares that with local governors called satraps or local kings and rulers, and he allows them to kind of live as Persian kings, a lesser version, certainly, but still as a Persian king. And that's kind of the way that he structures his empire. So he does it vertically, you know, through himself down to these kings, down to local rulers, but also across the length of his empire. And he uses luxury to do this. So this is kind of a, a favor, if you like. Um, and it's not just the typical material culture that we think of as being luxurious, so metals, um, but also foodstuffs and textiles um, and weaponry, etc. So it's quite an interesting spread. This is something that obviously very much stemmed from and fed into their political and cultural ambitions and strategy. And you've sort of hinted at it a little bit there, but could you tell us a little bit more about how this grandeur was presented? The key thing uh, I think you've got to kind of remember about the Achaemenid dynasty ruling ancient Iran is that they're peripatetic, and that means they're moving around the landscape. They're not fixed and nailed down to one imperial capital, but they're moving between five through Iran and, and Iraq. Um, seasonally over the course of the year, and in fact, often beyond that. That means the Persian court is mobile, and that is a huge event as the sort of the court in its sumptuous extravagance moves throughout the landscape. And I guess the, the most supreme symbol of Persian royalty and Persian luxury is the royal tent in which the, the king would inhabit. So as the king moves throughout the landscape in this amazing, luxurious, sumptuous tent, what he's doing, as Kelly was talking about, is bringing in local aristocracies and local governors in to dine with him, to feast, and to partake in the sumptuousness that is this mobile court. And it's real hearts and minds stuff because, of course, that's binding those people who rule on his behalf throughout the empire into a kind of aesthetic style of luxury that they then copy, emulate, and project throughout the empire long after the king has passed through. And I guess one of the most supreme icons of the king is to do with drinking, and it's called a riton, and that's from the Greek word rios, which means to flow. And we're talking about a wine pouring vessel, which is particularly Persian and particularly associated with Persian royalty. I've got a replica of a write-on with me now. Now, this is, this one's a bit banged up and a bit tarnished, but in the Persian court, these are made of gold, these are made of silver, they've got sort of inlaid glass and really quite astonishing stuff. But you can see on one half, it rises up almost like a drinking horn, 
but you don't drink from this right on Rios to flow. It's an object through which wine pours out. So there's usually a spout on the other end fashioned into some sort of fantastical creature as the kind of dramatic um, counterpoint to the funnel. And the king would stop the spout with his thumb, hold that above his head. We're talking reclining dining, so it'd be reclined back at the same time. And then dexterously, with an element of showmanship, I guess, balance carefully a drinking bowl on the fingertips of his other hand. And then in front of the assembled aristocrats and the elites and diplomats would unplug or unstop the spout to release a spurt of wine to flow dramatically into the bowl. And you have to imagine this being done in that sumptuous tent, you know, with flickering torches catching the gold and the silver and the, the ornaments of the hangings and the red wine all splashing into the bowl. And it really is, I think, an act of theatre. So there's the king dressed in elaborate court robes, surrounded by this elaborate theatrical setting that they've created as the court tent, using these sorts of paraphernalia. And I think you can see a really interesting relationship occurring in how luxury and royalty is associated with each other. Because by using these objects of gold and silver, they're bestowing prestige upon the king. But by using them in that setting, the king is bestowing prestige upon these objects. So as he gives them out, as Kelly was saying, as largesse to those who represent him throughout the empire, they then take that that authority and replicate it. And so luxury has this really definite role as this kind of tool of imperial statecraft to project the king's authority um, from the centre all the way through to the boondocks and the peripheries. I just wanted to point out as well, there's some really other interesting stuff um, because, of course, feasting is such a huge portion of Persian royalty and, and tradition and performance. Um, but there are other elements that we don't necessarily today associate with luxury, but the Persians definitely did. And we know that the local kings adopted it. So we have a, a relief in the exhibition and it shows um, a king he, he ruled in what's now Anatolia, modern-day Turkey. His name is Urbinus, and he built the Nereid Monument, part of which is here in the British Museum. And one of the reliefs show him um, enthroned, sort of, seated as a Persian king. And we know this because of the type of things he's using, stuff we normally wouldn't necessarily think is luxurious, but was considered to be so, including a footstool, because Persian kings never put their feet on the ground. They always walked on sumptuous carpets or put their feet up on footstools. Um, and he's being shaded by a parasol which isn't something that we consider particularly masculine or kingly objects today, um, but it was for the Persians a, a symbol of great kingship. And we see this local king uh, living in, you know, in, in Anatolia adopting this to show his Persian ties, which I think is really fascinating. So there's not just the beautiful gold and silver, of course, which is what catches everyone's eye and what we still think of as luxury, but other elements that were still there um, and had other meanings. So as you've said, Persia came into direct conflict with the ancient Greek city-states. How did views of luxury differ in the ancient Greek world? Ancient Greece is kind of an interesting place because the one um, source of information on Persian luxury we have is actually Greek historians. So ancient Persians wrote a lot down. I don't want it to make it sound like they couldn't write, uh, but they didn't write down these type of histories or stories or information about battles, etc. Uh, what we were looking at is a lot of administrative information. So if you want to know how many sheep you need to feed a workman, uh, group of workmen to build a palace, we know that, but we don't really know their opinions on the Greeks when they came into contact with the Greeks or their own opinion on luxury. Um, but the Greeks write this down a lot. And this is because 
because uh, when the Greeks encounter the Persians, um, specifically Athens, who is kind of leading this Delian League against the Persians, so a league of city-states in Greece, um, they have a lot of historians attempting to explain the victories that the Greeks end up achieving. So it's quite unusual uh, to think that an empire as vast as the Persians might have been defeated by the ancient Greek city-states kind of grouped together, but they were several times. And at one of the victories, uh, at a battle called Plataea, um, they actually captured the Persian command tent. And so this is, you know, where the lead of their campaign on military campaign. And inside this tent, which was sumptuous with fabric to begin with, they see dozens of gold and silver vessels and ivory uh, chairs and beds. And the Greeks just think, this is ridiculous. Who takes this on military campaign? Um, and they think to themselves, ah, this is why the Persians lost. They lost because they're so used to luxury, it weakens them. This decadence has turned them into to weaklings. And because the Greeks live a very kind of simple and pure um, life and are campaigning that way, that's how they're able to defeat it. So this kind of narrative of luxury leading to weakness, leading to defeat is something that the Greeks adopt to explain their victories. And it's actually something that we, as kind of the heirs to the Greek culture, uh, we through kind of coming through the Renaissance and the Enlightenment, continue to think, we still think today of kind of Eastern decadence and Western Spartanness, for instance. So that kind of carries on through that relationship. We know about that description that Kelly's talking about of the capture of the Persian tent at Plataea. And we know that through the words of the Greek historian Herodotus. And he's writing about 50 years after the event. And by then, this trope of luxury equals decadence is well and truly ingrained in the Greek psyche um, as part of this sort of explanation as to why the Persians had faltered and, and fallen to the much more plain living, simple living Greeks. Um, but I think you have to understand the context in which these Greek authors are writing. It's really, really important to understand, you know, what, what their words are being used for and the audiences that they're, that they're being written for. Um, and of course, when Persia invades Greece the first time, so it launches a, a maritime invasion and, of course, lands at the beaches of Marathon in 490 BC, well, democracy in Athens, not everywhere in Greece, but in Athens, it's really young. I mean, it's the, sort of the last laws are less than 20 years old that, that kind of give this sort of democratic code in the city. So this is a young, neurotic democracy that doesn't quite know what that means. And then the, the leading this coalition of other Greek states throws off the Persians from the shores at Marathon. And then 10 years later, well, Athens even gets invaded by Persia, but eventually, you know, the net following year gets kicked out of Europe altogether. That's a seminal moment in the nation-building um, psyche of this city of ancient Athens. And for the Persians, we don't know what they thought. Uh, Kelly's talked about the sort of the asymmetries of history here. But we don't know what the Persians thought about this conflict on the western fringes of this vast empire. But for the Athenians, it was seminal. And it was a real seminal moment of nation building. And so that, that attitude toward luxury sort of gets wrapped in what it is to be Greek and what it is to be Athenian. We are plain living and simple and virtuous because we are not the other, the barbarian East who's defined themselves by this sumptuous, luxurious, decadent living that effeminizes 
men that strips them of their their fierceness as warriors and their vitality as men. There's a real political um, edge to this. And I mean, one, one Persian scholar goes so far as to call it the greatest smear campaign in history. And the reason is, of course, because... As Kelly was talking about, through the you know through the Enlightenment and through the Renaissance, we framed ourselves in the West. And I'm you know sitting here saying this in the bastion of the British Museum, which in itself is a monument with Greek columns, you know, designed for this very sort of thing. We've des- we've framed ourselves as the natural inheritors of these classical ideals, but in so doing, we've kind of inherited that way of viewing the East and viewing luxury. There's a really interesting quote by the British philosopher John Stuart Mill. So this was done in the mid-19th century. But he said that the Battle of Marathon, even as an event in British history, was more important than the Battle of Hastings. Oh, it's an astonishing thing to say. But here we are, the natural inheritors of freedom and democracy in the West. But of course, we're looking at the otherness in the East, the fickleness and the fecklessness of the Oriental despot very much through these Greek eyes. So it's a real asymmetry. And I think there's also a, uh, resentment's not the right word, but there's, there's also a very complex feeling towards luxury because as Jamie mentioned, you know, democracy is barely 20 years old. They've captured all this Persian booty on the battlefield, but their democratic ideals tell them no man should be able to wield political power through his wealth. You know, everyone has to be equal. So ostentatious displays of individual wealth is a very negative thing in this period. So what do you do with all this material? You've just captured all this treasure. You can't hand it out to all the individuals because this is going to trigger all these problems. And one of the reasons we end up with democracy as a form of government in Athens is because we had these families who were squabbling, wealthy families, and a lot of times they wanted to rule and it led to bloodshed and that's why we got rid of this. They wanted you know, equality, uh, equality for Athenian men, I should point out. So this is a period where if you are a woman, a slave, or not born in Athens, you do not have political power in Athens. Um, so yeah, so they, they've captured all this treasure. They can't just hand it out to, to everyone. What do they do with it? And um, that's really interesting because they come up with kind of a democratic solution to this as well. Um, and that is that they use it for the good of Athens. So that's okay. It's not good if you let one person use it to elevate himself above all others, but you can use it to elevate Athens and Athena and, you know, the city. Um, so they do, they do use some of that wealth to rebuild because as Jamie mentioned, uh, the Persians sacked Athens and burnt it. Uh, so they build the Parthenon on top of the Acropolis. They build um, a music hall and various other things to, to serve the people with this wealth. Um, but that's not to say that people didn't see it. People still saw the wealth. Uh, we know that they they paraded some of these treasures that they kept in the Parthenon. So people were able to witness these objects. So it wasn't completely hidden. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it. So your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. 
Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is just a quick side note. We've spoken about Athens, obviously famous as being the birthplace of democracy. But do we get any idea of how other Greek city-states felt about the Persians? Was Athens a a bit of an outlier or was this a common view? No, I think it was a common view. I mean, Persia was the, the largest empire right on the edges of the Greek world with very real territorial ambitions. So, I mean... It had already conquered in the, you know, several uh, decades before Greek settlements on the Ionian coast, so the the coast of Western Turkey. So there were already cultural Greeks who were part of the Persian Empire. And there was great fears that that Persia would sweep through as it tried to do twice, first at Marathon in 490 and then the second time successfully for a little bit into Athens and and other Greek city-states. So when uh, Persia was expelled after the battles of Plataea and Salamis in 480-479 BC, Athens actually leads a coalition of the willing. Uh, Sparta becomes part of this alongside Athens for a little bit, but Athens and Sparta were never comfortable bedfellows and, of course, would go to war several decades afterwards. But regardless, the, the threat of the eastern menace lingered over Greece like a dark radioactive cloud for several decades. And Athens used that menace, that fear, to stitch together this coalition of the willing of the several Greek city-states to then push Persia out of Europe and to try and liberate those Greek cities that were under Persian control in on the coast of modern-day Turkey. The issue, of course, is that Athens... Uh, uses this in an opportunistic way. And so by, you know, the 440s, 450s, Athens has emerged at the head of what is now an empire, where even if you wanted to leave this coalition, you weren't allowed to, and often aggressively and quite violently so. And subject states had to pay tribute to Athens, um, and that tribute flows into a central treasury on the island of Delos, which soon after is moved into Athens itself. And so there's a real kind of twist, a mission creep, if you like, um, sort of done in the name of the Persian threat. By looking at the material culture... Do we tend to see a sense of the everyday man sticking to this Greek narrative? You would presume correctly. (laughs) So we know that Athena takes her cuts, um, but that seems to be only about 10%. So the rest of it is circulating somewhere. Soldiers are taking things from the battlefield. Um, But the really interesting thing about Greece um, is we tend to preserve all these beautiful metal objects, for instance, because they're buried in tombs. So from Persia, from Egypt, we get a lot of this because they bury their best grave goods. Greece doesn't do this. This is something interesting. They tend to hand down their 
material culture. So especially things that are made out of metal that can be melted down and recast, why would you bury it? Um, so there is a chance, and we do have written sources that tell us that there are people drinking out of metal cups in Greece, et cetera, et cetera. But what actually preserves to us is different. You tend to get a lot of things still made out of clay, like the, we think of classic Greek pottery. But we do start to see replication happening. So we get um, these beautiful little jugs and pots. You know, they're made out of clay, but they're molded in the same shape as a metal one would be, even to the point where they have rivets, fake rivets. These are clay rivets. They're not holding anything together. But the whole point is to say that this beautiful black glaze pot is supposed to shine like silver, but it's a more acceptable version of luxury. It's not this ostentatious version. It's clay. It's good. It's, it's a traditional Greek version. And we also get these stunning drinking vessels. So unlike the beautiful riton that Jamie showed us earlier um, and that the, the Persians adored, the Greeks weren't super keen on this. We do start to see them replicate it in clay, but it doesn't catch on. But the one thing they liked about it is they liked the animal heads that you see as the terminal on the riton. And so they adopted that and they made drinking mugs out of them. And But these are still quite uniquely Greek. They are humorous, for instance. They're not uh, as serious and intimidating as some of the Persian ones. You get ones where when you lift the mug up to your face, you actually become that animal. Um, so it's kind of this humorous uh, ability. And that ties in maybe a bit more to how the Greeks living their life, having their social life. So we talked about the Persians having their feasting, where it's very hierarchical. But the Greeks are not. Their feasts Again, if you're a man, again, again, this whole thing, you're participating in it, their symposium, they're all sat along the wall, so no man is, you know, higher than any other, and it's all about equality in that sense. So these drinking cups, they have a bit of the Persian style, but they twist it so that it's kind of an acceptable Greek version. So, yeah, there's definitely Persian luxury circulating, but also they're adapting it to make it Greek luxury in its own way. It's almost subversive what they're doing um, in a way, because, of course, you know, those animal-headed writers that Kelly's describing in the Persian court, they are there to bestow prestige and, and power. But, you know, as Kelly's saying, in that symposium environment, that's anathema to all of that. But by putting a donkey's head on one, and so when you lift the cup up to your face and you become a donkey, that's a joke. And it's taken something that is so luxurious associated with the Persian political regime and it's subverted it into something that not only that's appropriate to Athenian drinking practices, but actually is belittling in a way what's happening to what's happening in Persia itself. And I think you can see this in one other case because you remember just earlier. Kelly was speaking about one of the big macho symbols of Persian royal authority, you know, the, the Chuck Norris symbol that you hold to show your manliness, and that is, of course, a parasol, because the Persian king is not supposed to have the rays of the sun hit his face. It's a, a rarefied symbol of his, his sort of reverence and his um, rarefied status. Well, luxury is kind of sticky, and this is a time in Athens where, as the city emerges as one of the most wealthiest cities in the eastern Mediterranean across the 5th century, this this influx of wealth activates people to become, to, to reach for new ways of reaching for social edges. And so we see um, a sort of a phenomenon that some scholars have called persery, almost like Turkery in the 19th century where sort of objects of Eastern Turkish exotica were picked up by aristocracies and wealthy people in Europe. And it's the same thing. You see Persian forms of, of you know, of power and luxury being picked up in Athens, but 
they get appropriated and sort of hit over the anvil of what it means to be democratic to make them acceptable. So you introduce something like a parasol and you walk around, you know, the Athenian agora as a man, and that's dangerous. It's destabilizing. It's giving one person something that's a symbol of, of political edge against another. It doesn't work in that environment. So this is the first time you see parasols becoming associated with women. And that's okay because in, of course, Greek society, as Kelly said, women don't hold political authority. They don't have any power to vote. So it's neutered, if you like, stripped of its political resonance and so its political danger. But there's also that element of being subversive as well. Because where once you look east and it's something associated with the Persian king or the various rulers who represent him, well, it's, it's the Greek women parading through. And you see this, the pictures of them on various pots. We've got two um, depictions on pots in our, in our exhibition, including a foot bath, which is one. So this would have been, you know, under this sort of puddle of water into which a delicate Athenian elite lady would have had her feet washed by a servant. And it shows... Um, a woman sitting down playing with a, a ball of string while a servant holds a parasol over her, you know, and she's being offered a piece of jewellery from, from a casket or something like that. So ladies of leisure, and it's made okay, almost subversively so, to become appropriate in Athens. We've spoken a little bit about Persia and we've spoken a little bit about Greece and both of their views on luxury. How did this compare to contemporaries? Do we get any idea of anyone else's views on this extravagance? Yeah, it's a really good point, Emily, because we've spoken about Persian, but of course the Persian Empire has stitched together under the imperial regime a myriad of different cultures, a myriad of different languages and different religions and all this sort of stuff. And what's I think really interesting is that Luxury is an imperial tool of statecraft in ancient Persia is so successful because you see it rippling across these different cultures and being emulated and used in slightly different ways, but ways that within the Persian Empire respect its role as a political tool, unlike Athens where you see it being subverted and, and hijacked into something different. So we've got, for example, um, a write-on in the, in the exhibition that we've borrowed from colleagues at the Erebuni Museum. The Erebuni Museum is in Yerevan in Armenia. So this is part of the Persian Empire. It's right on the boondocks. It's right on the edge of the Persian world. And it's a big clunky ride on it. doesn't quite look sort of the refined Persian version. But the spout that's always shaped as a fantastical beast, it's actually shaped as a Persian rider riding a horse, a cavalryman. And Persian write-ons don't ever show Persians. They're, they're, there's more, you know, griffins and fantastic creatures like that. So here's one made, it's in silver, um, made by an elite group of people or a person somewhere right on the edge of empire saying, not only am I going to try and drink like a Persian, but look, there's even a Persian on mine. It's more Persian than Persian. And I think that's really interesting because it's showing the success of luxury binding the hearts and minds all to the imperial centre, even though they're doing it in slightly different kinds of ways. And that Nereid monument that, that Kelly spoke of before, where you see the king holding a right on up, drinking it like a Persian, that he's, he's using those tools, those insignias of authority which relate to Persia. And yet that whole tomb monument that, that it's from, if you take a step back, it looks exactly like a Greek temple because here he's right on the cusp between the Greek and the Persian world. So he's reaching for both. So you get this wonderful plurality 
of different groups and different cultures doing different things for different reasons, but within the same kind of dialectic, the same sort of, of environment that ties it all together. And I think it also has something to do with resourceability. So one of the things that we hear the Greeks say, I think in the same quote about capturing the tent, is the ridiculousness of the Persians coming to invade Greece, because Greece is so resource poor. They're like, why have they come here to rob? We have nothing. They have everything. This makes no sense for them to have invaded us. Um, And it's true that other parts of the Persian Empire are very resource rich. So actually, this idea of luxury and luxury materials was maybe already familiar to some of the cultures that the Persians took over during this period, uh, versus it was kind of a very foreign concept to the Greeks. Because yes, they had a few silver mines and things like this, but it wasn't as as bountiful as other places. But just something that popped into mind while Jamie was talking, some cultures don't, um, it's not that they don't adapt to the Persian, but they have their own way of working that's so entrenched that the Persians have to adapt to them. So for instance, in Egypt, we see that actually the Persian king completely embraces a lot of the traditional Egyptian rulership because that's a more effective way to rule rather than kind of working in his way. And there's still, you know, this idea of largesse perhaps going in both directions. But there's a beautiful object in the exhibition where um, the Persian king Darius is portraying himself as a pharaoh worshipping Anubis, an ancient Egyptian god. So he's kind of saying, I'll just insert myself into this culture. So we're getting this interesting mixing. But I think the Greek kick back is really because it's such a different idea. I think it would be remiss to have this conversation and not to at least mention Alexander the Great. (laughs) So in terms of the historical context, firstly, where does he come into this story? And also, where does he stand in this great debate of luxury? It's a, a really vital point. And it's a really important part of the story. Because Of course, Alexander and his father, uh, Philip of Macedon, these are rulers of the kingdom of Macedon in sort of the east part of the the Balkan Peninsula. And Philip, of course, in the 4th century BC, uh, conquers Greece. He's trying to then go across and conquer Persia, the mighty empire. But uh, he dies, and so his son Alexander III, Alexander the Great, crosses the Bosphorus, crosses into Asia Minor, and then rolls up the Persian armies quite quickly, really. Um, But we're talking 150 years after the Greek-Persian Wars. So it's not like, you know, Persia was so enfeebled as many historians have traditionally described, you know, it's been enfeebled by luxury, the Greek-Persian Wars weaken it, and then Alexander sort of mops it all up. This has been going on quite strong for 150 years. And it's still a very strong, well-functioning empire, although they were absolutely outgunned and outgeneraled by the Macedonian soldiery. Um, But of course, for Greek writers trying to explain why the Persians fell to Alexander, already have well-entrenched tropes to reach for, which are those that many Greek writers use to explain why Persia didn't succeed in the Greek-Persian Wars. And that is, of course, well, no wonder they lost to Alexander. This is an empire so enfeebled and softened by luxury. Of course, Alexander is quite a politically savvy guy. And as he conquers the Persian East, he and then later on his his generals um, would realise, came to realise very quickly, that luxury is a very significant, very sophisticated tool of political power, not only to showcase your own authority, but to legitimate your own authority to this array of different cultures, including the Persians, over whom he's now ruling. And so... 
what you get is Alexander adopting some of those elements of sort of royal luxury that are associated with the Persians. He moves into the Persian command tent, for example, the royal tent. He recognises the symbology of that. He wears the royal coat, the, the, the beautiful coat that, you know, the Persian king would wear. And you know, some scholars estimate that when the Persian king was standing up in this, he was wearing about three million pounds worth of stuff. So Alexander sees the significance of that. Um, but he's trying to kind of surf this, this line, this point break, if you like, between being Persian and luxurious and being sort of Greek Macedonian and, and, and simpler plane of living because his troops feel a little uncomfortable. They don't want him to go completely native, but Alexander realises the power of, of doing that. And so you get this wonderful kind of blending of, of cultures, but particularly in the sort of luxurious culture where you get things that look Persian and things that look Greek Macedonian and things that look like from all the cultures in between into this blended hybrid culture to get a new form of luxurious style and, in fact, a new form of political leadership that's neither Eastern nor Western, but a, a joining of both. But uh, my favourite part about Alexander is there was something he was not willing to do in his compromising between, you know, embracing Persian rulership, and that was trousers. He would not wear trousers. So Persians wore trousers. They're horse-riding people. This makes perfect sense for them to have developed trousers. The Greeks found it barbaric for the for people to be wearing trousers, so Alexander embraces most of the Persian dress or the Persian coat, but trousers are a step too far, which I think is great, um, and he will not wear them. <laughs> Yeah, sleeves for your legs. That's insane. <laughs> we've actually featured in the exhibition a couple of reconstructed Persian costumes, and we've done this with a professor of Persian ancient history called Lloyd Llewellyn-Jones at Cardiff University. And everything about these costumes, the cut, the stitches, the colour, everything is, is informed by archaeological or historical or iconographic pieces of evidence. Um, but my favourite part in that is when... We did, well, Lloyd arranged for, to recreate some of these trousers for which the Persians are so famous. And there's very good reasons to think that the, the crutch, the groin of the trousers sort of opens up like an accordion because, of course, this is a horse riding peoples. And so, you know, if you're in the saddle for many hours during the day, it's, it's a bit more comfortable if, you can, uh, if you've got that flexibility, I guess. And it's a really lovely kind of piece of, of realia, I think, that it shows just almost the humanness behind the ostentation that, that you're looking at in a lot more of the gilding and the guilting of the, the whole exhibition following on from Persian luxury. Mm, that and the trousers have built-in feet, which I think are great. So like totally sewn in. They look like little onesie trousers. We should have replicated them and sold them in the shop. Mm. <laughs> I mean, I would have definitely purchased a pair. They sound yeah. amazing for winter. <laughs> so obviously trousers are a big thing, but do we get a sense of how the Greeks responded to Alexander kind of co-opting some of this, but not all of it. We have bits and pieces. One thing that kind of sticks out to me, I mean, if you've seen 300, this movie that came out, gosh, a while ago now, which makes me feel old, but um, that there's a scene, a very famous scene where they have some Persian, I guess they're they're they've come to deliver a message and King Leonidas decides he doesn't like this message and he 
tells them this is Sparta and kicks them down a well. And this is actually based on something that supposedly happened. It's recorded um, that these messengers were there and they, the Spartans were then summoned to the Persian court to explain why they'd kicked two of the messengers down a well. And um, the Persian king actually said, you know what, it's fine. I'll forgive you. I won't retaliate. Just, I just need you to prostrate yourself before me, bow before me, kiss the ground. Um, and this was so revolting to the Spartans and to the Greeks in general. And this is something that we hear that, that they just refuse. They would rather die than bow before this Persian king. And this is something that we know that also the soldiers that were traveling with Alexander did not like, that he allowed people to do this to him, that he had elevated himself to this level above the other Greeks. Because again, we still have this idea of equality. Yes, they are being ruled by a king, ruled by Alexander, but there's still this kind of sense of equalness of Greek men. So we do see bits and pieces in, in the histories and the literature of this discomfort rubbing along about a blending of cultures, um, but not necessarily in the archaeological record. We actually see objects that are showing this blending of cultures throughout the Persian Empire, because we were talking so much about what's coming from Persia. So we're talking about what's moving, what's coming from the east, moving west, but now, because of Alexander, we have things from the West moving East. And of course, I mean, what we know about it from the historical record as opposed to the archaeological one is still a very Greek-dominated um, perspective. We don't have this in the exhibition. It's in uh, Naples, I think. But the famous, famous image of Alexander is from a wall fresco. Um, and, you know, if you shut your eyes and think of what Alexander looks like, this is probably what your mind's eye will pull up because it's showing him defeating Darius at the Battle of um, uh, Issus, I think. But, you know, one side there's Alexander with this sort of flowing locks looking young and beautiful and, and, and ferocious. And then he's sort of framed by the King Darius, who's got his kind of um, leather cap and he's looking frightened and feckless and he's on a chariot that's about to turn and flee. Uh, but if you, you look at those two figures, that's great. But you look at the, the figure immediately below Darius and it's a horse, but it's really weird because it's directly, um, it's done in full profile because everything else is side on. And it's not the horse's head, it's the horse's bum directed straight out. And it's this real degenerative um, dig at the Persian. You know, he's there and right above the, the, the rear end of the horse. It's a very political kind of motivated depiction, almost like a cartoon, if you like. And so I think, you know, when we talk about how the Persians might have responded to all of this sort of stuff, we don't quite know. But again, we have to read through the historical sources with rose-coloured glasses, or at least, you know, with, with those issues of propaganda to be taken into account. After Alexander's death, was there a legacy of utilising some of the wealth and imagery that he'd adopted and co-opted in his empire's successor states? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so some of the... So in this period, we're having coins being minted. Um, so the Persians use coins as did the Greeks. So, of course, we're going to see Alexander doing the same. And some of his successor kings, so we, we end up with these Hellenistic kingdoms, essentially. Um, and very broadly, we've divided them into kind of four, four broad sections. They fracture a lot, but focusing on four. And some of them really keep Alexander on their coinage for a while because they know that his face, his symbol, gives them legitimacy in their rule, which I think is fascinating. And they're framing themselves as well in that way. And um, a quite an unusual way, one of them does this, I think, is they embrace using the war elephant. So this is something that Alexander 
uses. So he, as he's invading across Central Asia, he sees for the first time war elephants. He thinks, yes, I want these. Um, And then his successor kings also find them to be great symbols. And um, one of them, Ptolemy, so he's ruling in Egypt, he would really like war elephants for his effort. But unfortunately, he can't get access to the ones that Alexander got coming from Asia because that's part of another kingdom at this period in time. So he has to go south. He goes south into Sudan and possibly Ethiopia to find his own African war elephants. And we have a beautiful piece in the exhibition that's actually from a, a window grill. Um, and it's from what would have been Nubia, but is today Egypt, the very south of Egypt. And it shows a man carrying an elephant on his shoulders. Now, I think this is probably very artistic because even a baby elephant is a little bit heavy, um, but it's this idea of elephants being very important. And Ptolemy uh, made a huge effort to parade these elephants through the streets of Alexandria, show his power and his might of his army. But again, this is because these are symbols that are associated with Alexander's army. So we are seeing this happen both in the archaeological record and the written record uh, in various ways, I think. So in the exhibition, do you have any good regional examples of this kind of cultural blending? I think we've got one of the most spectacular examples of this kind of cultural blending, and it's called the Panagurishti Treasure. So it's from ancient Bulgaria, and Bulgaria uh, in this period is sort of known as a region called Thrace, and it's sort of comprising a series of different chiefdoms, different kingdoms. Um, So it's not, again, not a unified political entity, but a a collection of different sort of competing um, tribes and, and competing kingdoms. But that region had been conquered briefly by the Achaemenid Persian Empire. Uh, Greek settlements had settled all along the Black Sea coast of ancient Bulgaria and they were trading particularly for the for, for gold. So they'd been exposed to Greek culture. And then, of course, it became subsumed under Philip into the Macedonian kingdom as well. And so it's this real crossroads between East and West. And when I say the Panagurishti treasure, what I'm talking about are nine gold vessels, uh, one of which is a large... Um, drinking bowl, uh, but the other eight are all, although they all look a bit different, they all form uh, wine-pouring write-on vessels. And so they're, they're all about ostentatious drinking. But what you're seeing is really cool because these write-ons function like Persian write-ons do, this wine-pouring vessels where the wine pours out and flows into a bowl. And of course, the Greeks don't they, they never really adopt that. So in terms of its form and in terms of its function, it's got this sort of Persian echo to it. Even though Thrace hadn't been part of the Persian Empire for about 150 years, these vessels, by the way, were made about 300 BC. So we're talking a couple of decades after the death of Alexander in 323 BC. But they also look really Greek because a lot of them have sort of figures in relief around the necks of these vessels. And we're talking absolute bog-standard Greek myth. You know, Paris judging the beauty contest between the three goddesses, a thankless task if there ever was one, Um, Dionysus, all this sort of stuff. So in terms of the Persia and Greece sorts of duality or the, the, you know, the, the binaries of this exhibition, it's showing that hybridity of it both really well in this new internationalized world that has arisen under the, the new rulership of the, of the Alexander and then the Hellenic kingdoms that succeed him. These vessels are, of course, this stunning blend, um, but 
what's really incredible is some of their usages. So like Jamie said, they're ritons, they're these wine pourers and a, and a bowl. But one of them is spectacular. It looks like an amphora. So it looks like a, a, quite a bulbous vase with two handles, but it is in fact a riton. So it has two spouts at the bottom and they're shaped like cherubs blowing, which I think is quite cute so that the wine would come out their face. Um, but it's, it's built for two people because you have two streams of wine. Now, this is not your neighbor's drinking set. You know, this is clearly a king or someone very, very important. So if you're having their center, centerpiece of this group, this very large M4 right on two streams, you're looking at two people drinking out of it, probably two kings or a king and someone else who's very highly, you know, prized in his estimation. So this could be perhaps at a time where you're marrying your daughter off to another local king or you've just negotiated a peace treaty or something important and you want to seal this treaty together. And so you both are going to drink from the same amphora riton. Now, this is a period in time where poisoning is a very, very good way to get rid of your rivals, uh, you know, very Game of Thrones style things. So if you're willing to both of you drink from the same vessel, that's a massive show of trust between two people. So I always like to say that this, this vessel specifically really embodies the concept of luxury and power just in one object, because it is ridiculously luxurious. Nobody needs a solid cold, you know, drinking vessel, but also the power from two people sharing a vessel and the trust in that is just spectacular. So it's blingy, it's wonderful, but it tells us so much as well about the cultures that are using it. That was Jamie Fraser and Kelly Assetta Crow. The British Museum's latest exhibition, Luxury and Power, Persia to Greece, is open now and runs until the 13th of August. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Sam Leal Green. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.